The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, open your Bibles to Psalm 1 this morning. And I'd like to thank Pastor Smith and the church for the wonderful accommodations. It's always a blessing to be here with the church family, to come here and to preach God's word and to fellowship with God's people. And I did read that little article in there, the Pastor Smith in there. I guess it was nine years ago. Boy, it seems like just yesterday we met. Nine years ago, I've been, a, I've, I've been serving the Lord as a pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in the big metropolis of Delano, California. Uh, I've been there for 15 years, and I've also been involved in prison ministry over 16 years, and also currently uh, serve as a full-time chaplain at Avenal State Prison in Avenal, California. In the prison ministry, I do enjoy preaching the Word of God there, and we've had Brother Jorge and Richard have come down several times uh, from Berean here to preach in Avenal, and they've enjoyed it, and it's a wonderful ministry. Uh, I know people often joke around, I'm sure you have a captive audience there, Brother Castro, and well, you know, they don't have to be there, but they do, many men do come to hear the gospel, so it is a wonderful privilege anytime you get to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to sinners, and I, and I thank the Lord for that ministry. We'll be looking at Psalm 1 this morning. Let us stand together as we read God's precious word this morning. A familiar psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. And his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your precious word this morning. Thank you, Father, for showing us the blessed life, the life of rejoicing in contrast to a life of ruin, the godless life. Help us, O Lord, and I pray that you would encourage your people this morning, that you would build us up in our most holy faith as we hear your word preached. Use it to glorify thyself, to build up and edify the saints. Father, I also pray for those who have not come to a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would be pleased to draw them to yourself even this morning, that you would be glorified in their salvation. Father, we pray that you would bless your word this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. The title of our message this morning is Rejoicing or Ruin. We see the two paths, the blessed life of the godly man, and also the road that leads to ruin, the ungodly man here in our passage. When it comes to the word blessed, it has many synonyms, one of them being happy, the happy life, the blessed man, the happy man. I remember back in 1988, many years ago, <clears throat> there was a very popular wide hit song. It was titled, Don't Worry, Be Happy. 
Yes, very deep lyrics. And it was a a cappella song that caught on to many people as they would hum this tune about not worrying and be happy. He never really said why we shouldn't worry, just don't worry, be happy. Billy Graham tells in the book The Secret of Happiness of a man who had a disturbed patient who was suffering from great depression, didn't know what to do with life. So he went to go see a famous psychiatrist. And as he was lying on the couch there speaking to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist told this man that he needed to go see this man who was in town, an Italian clown, who was known to make people laugh and bring joy and happiness into their life. To which the man, lying on the couch speaking to the psychiatrist, said with tears streaming down his face, I am that clown. Ralph Barton, who made his life as a cartoonist bringing happiness to people, wrote in his suicide note, I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. I believe there is a such thing as Christian happiness or Christian joy and rejoicing that is quite distinctively different from what the world offers. The problem is that it is so multi-layered when it comes to Christian joy, rejoicing, and Christian happiness. It is multi-layered and multi-dimensional. It's kind of hard to summarize. Consider even just a few sample sources of which joy can come to a believer in his life even now. We can get great joy and great happiness from the fact that we have a loving, all-sovereign Father in God. We can have great joy in that we have an all-sufficient and powerful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can thank God that He has sent His Holy Spirit to indwell us and to permanently seal that salvation. We can be thankful this morning as Christians and have a source of joy. And the reality that our sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. We can rejoice and have joy and blessedness in the fact that we have been justified by God, by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That we have been adopted into his families, are no longer his enemies, but now are his sons and daughters. We can rejoice. That God is working out all things according to his purposes for his glory and for the good of his people. We can rejoice in that we have the sure promises of God, that God is not a man that he should lie, and that his promises are good. When everyone else's promises fail, God is good and he keeps his word. We can have joy in that. How do you put all these rich ingredients in one simple recipe? Well, we could say that Christian happiness is the grace of loving and being loved by Jesus Christ who gave his life for me. Baptist pastor Octavius Winslow said in the 1800s, The child of God is, from necessity, a joyful man. His sins are forgiven. His soul is justified. His person is adopted. His trials are blessings. His conflicts are victories. His death is immortality. His future is the heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is he not, ought he not to be a joyful man? The blessed life, this is what Psalm 1 presents, the blessed life of the godly man. The blessed life, the happy life, is to be 
lived by the believer who has been transformed by divine grace. He then, being justified by God's grace, is then to live a life in the context of God's holy word. This is the godly man, the blessed man of Psalm 1. In verse 1 of Psalm 1, in the original language, blessed is repeated. This is the Hebrew method of indicating the plural of intensifying its meaning. We can translate it something like, paraphrase it something like, oh, how very happy. Or the happiness. In reality, this soul satisfaction is pleasure that is found in the Lord himself. This promise of blessing is precisely what Jesus announced in the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. True happiness is experienced by all who trust in the Lord. The psalmist will later write in Psalm 1611, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So Paul could say under Roman imprisonment, being under house arrest in Philippians 4. He didn't say rejoice in circumstances, because circumstances can be quite tough in this world. But he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. If we could summarize Psalm 1, this blessed psalm, we could summarize it like this. Blessed are the righteous that live a separated life from the world system and are filled with God's truth. And to the contrary, the wicked are unstable and will perish. Rejoicing in the Lord, the blessed man, and the ungodly man whose life will lead to eternal ruin. We're going to look, first of all, at the road to rejoicing. The godly man in verses 1 through 3. The road to rejoicing. This is the godly man. What marks the godly man? Well, The godly man is, number one, separated from the world. He is separated from the world. And what we mean by the world is the world system. That is, the world system, its morals, its values, its worldview. The blessed man does not swallow the world's values. He's not conformed to the spirit of the age. He separates, in verse 1, He separates from the advice of the world. And the world is filled with advice. He separates from the advice of the world. Look at verse number one, the first portion. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Here's the ungodly, meaning the wicked, the guilty, the criminal, the transgressor. The ungodly refers to the person whose life is based upon the world's wisdom. For when the world says, man, you have to, the most important thing you can do is love yourself. And the ungodly man says, yes, that's true. Amen. This is the world's values. This is the ungodly man. And the Bible says the opposite. The greatest thing we're to do is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second commandment is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But the world's wisdom says it's all about you. And you look in the mirror and says, you're somebody. It's about you, buddy. This is the ungodly. 
We need to be on guard because in the counsel of the ungodly, the advice of the wicked, the advice of the world, not only floods society and talk shows on television, but it even has seeped into churches. People giving advice based on the presuppositions and ideologies of lost mankind. The Bible, the Word of God, the unerring Word of God, is adequate to counsel and to equip the believer for every good work. The Apostle Peter reminded us that God has given to us in 2 Peter 1, God has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Not some things, but all that we need, not all that we want, all that we need, the counsel, the guidance we need is found in the Word of God and God's precious promises. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. How to live a righteous life. That the man of God may be perfect, fully mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, fully equipped to do the will of God. The equipping instrument that God uses is his word. The godly man knows that. That is why he rejects the counsel and the advice of the ungodly. He refuses the secular and humanistic values of a godless age. He refuses the worldview that places man at the center of the universe and entices him to live by his own standards, by his own morality, as he conceives truth in any way he feels and wants to. The psalmist later on will write in Psalm 119.24, Thy testimonies are my delight and my counselors. It doesn't say Dr. Phil was his counselor. But God's word. God's word. The godly man, he separates from the advice of the world. If there's something profitable that he needs, advice that he needs, it comes through the word of God. He separates from the advice of the world, but also in verse 1, he also separates from the actions of the world. He separates from the actions of the world. Notice the next part of the sentence here in verse 1. The blessed man, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Now, there's nothing wrong with being friendly with lost men and women, of course. Jesus was friendly towards sinners, no doubt. He made friends with all types of people. But he did so in order to save sinners, for he's come to save his people from their sins. He didn't come to make people comfortable in their sin, but he came to rescue them from their sin. Jesus was called a friend of publican, of tax gatherers and sinners. Now, this verse is not saying don't be friendly to sinners. No, we ought to be loving to all people. The idea here is this verse teaches us that we're not to stand in the way of sinners. That is to say, we're not involved in their evil activities. That is, the believer, as Ephesians 5 tells us, is to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather, he reproves them. He's not involved in the actions of the world. His lifestyle is different than the ungodly. His faith affects him not only for one hour on Sunday, but affects him on Monday through Saturday as well. This is the godly man. He separates 
from the advice and the actions of this ungodly world. Not only that, in verse 1, he also separates from the attitude of the world. From the attitude of the world. Look with me at the end of verse 1. This blessed man, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. The godly man here does not sit in the seat of the scornful or those who mock the word of God. This means he refuses to associate with those who would scoff at God's word. They would scoff at the person and the character of God. He avoids close relationships with those who are blasphemers, those who trample underfoot the truth of God's word. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote with regards to this verse, with respect to the term seat, to sit in the seat is to teach as to act as the instructor and teacher, such as the Pharisees in Matthew 23, they sat in the seat of Moses, meaning they taught with authority from the seat of Moses. They sit in the seat of pestilence, who fill the church with the opinions of philosophers, with the traditions of men, and with the counsels of their own brain, setting aside all the while the word of God. The ungodly man, the godly man has no time for the attitude that scoffs the word of God. He believes the word of God. This is the godly man. He is separated from the world, but not only is he negatively separated from the world, which he is, but also, number two, he is saturated in the word of God. He is filled, not with the latest business technique, with the latest counseling fad. No, he is saturated in the word of God. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. The godly man delights in the law of the Lord. The person who knows genuine joy, he reads and relishes the very word of the living God. This hunger for the Bible is a clear indication that he has been born again, that he has received a divine heart transplant, for he loves God and he loves the word of God. The word meditate, he meditates in God's word day and night. The word meditate is a Hebrew verb meaning to mutter, to speak, to figuratively ponder. We're good at meditation. Just what are we meditating on? You can walk up to someone and say, Brother Jorge, that is the ugliest tie I've ever seen. Man, terrible. Oh, so ugly. Have a good day, brother. We'll see you later. And then all day he would be meditating upon my comment. Man, Pastor Castle really insulted me. Oh, how terrible. And he's just muttering, thinking, pondering chewing as a cow does its cud. He's been chewing on this statement made, and he's just meditating on my words, and boy, that will bring him down. But the blessed man doesn't meditate on what people say, doesn't meditate on what the latest movie star said. He meditates on the unerring word of God. This is what God commanded of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, as he's getting ready to lead the people of God into the promised land. 
This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then then thou shalt have good success by meditating, thinking, pondering on the word of God. This is the blessed man. He meditates on God's word day and night. In order to meditate in God's word, you've got to get in God's word. Number three, or verse three, I should say, verse three. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What a, what a beautiful description of the blessed man. The blessed man who delights in God's law, he is compared to a tree that has been planted by streams of water. The Hebrew word translated planted literally means transplanted. He's been planted from one area, he's been taken out of one area, and then transplanted in another area. Picture with me, you're living in Palestine in the Middle East. And there they have seasonal rivers during the rainy seasons, they're called wadis. These seasonal rivers will come flowing down, but then once the rainy season is over, it will dry up and leave, and leave all kinds of plants that have really blossomed They've blossomed in these wadis because of the water, but now they're beginning to die. And here comes a farmer. And he notices as the wadi is drying up that this plant, this tree, this little baby tree that is growing, it's only going to survive if I transplant it. If I take it from its natural habitat, I take it and then plant it by these canals of water where the water flows year around 12 months out of the year. So the picture here is of taking that little little tree where it was there in the Wadi River, taking it as the Wadi has dried up, taking that plant and transplanting it to where there is rivers of water. This is the man who's been saved by the grace of God. He's been transplanted. He has been given a heart transplant. Not a physical heart transplant, but spiritually speaking, his heart of stone has been taken out of him. He's been given a heart of flesh in regeneration. He has, listen, no tree transplants itself. You don't see a little baby tree in the wadi, and it looks and says, man, it's, it's getting quite dry here. I need to go there by the canals of water. It doesn't move itself. Someone must act upon it. It must be acted upon. If the farmer doesn't move to act upon it and transplant it, it will die. This is what God does in salvation. It is not a cooperative effort between the sinner and the Savior. Regeneration is the sovereign work of God. Where he transplants, takes out that heart of stone and grants a heart of flesh, which results in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the blessed man has been blessed not because he deserves it, or has merited it, or earned it, or was born in the right family, but simply by grace. God has transplanted him to rivers, streams of water. This is what God's word does. It nourishes a man like water nourishes a little tree. 
So the waters of God's word nourishes the people of God. In Ephesians 5, when the apostles dealing with the Lord's love for his church, he compares how a husband is to love his wife, and as a result of the husband's love towards his wife, the wife becomes more godly. Christ himself loves his people that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the water of the word of God. This is what God uses to nourish God's people. The very word of God. This is why David would write in Psalm 19, in verse 7 through 10 about God's word. He would say, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it's true. Now, in prison and also in some churches, there's times when men will have their services and they have testimony time. Guys will get up and give their testimonies. It can go very bizarre very quick. When I have services, no testimony, just preaching. But when they have services on their own and they have testimony time, people come in with fantastic testimonies of their salvation. I mean, so these guys will talk about how they went to heaven, they went to hell, and they went to Las Vegas, they went here, and all these things happened, then they became a Christian. You're thinking, oh, kind of bizarre. We could say of their testimonies that are unsure, but the testimony of God through the word of God is sure. It's for sure. It's, it's certain. It makes the simple wise. The statutes of the Lord, David said, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. God's word is always relevant. It is always in. Whether it's from the public's perspective, whether it's in season or out of season, it is eternally true, for it is the word of God. It's what God uses to nurture, to nourish his people. When indwelt by the living word, the leaf of the righteous, according to our passage, shall not wither. It doesn't wither. Even during the dry seasons, it doesn't wither. Even in the dry seasons and times of trials, times of struggles, times of tragedy, the righteous, those who have been saved by God's grace, cannot help but trust the Lord. Look at Job, a saved man, a living illustration that true believers persevere in faith. A man who had all of his business, all of his riches stripped from him on one day. A man who had his seven sons and three daughters killed in one day. A man whose health was taken from him in the midst of suffering, not understanding what is going on. And yet he could say in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. His leaf, Job's leaf, did not wither, it persevered. So the man whom God saves will persevere, trusting in the Lord and in his goodness. Furthermore, he's like a tree that yields its fruit in season. This pictures continual fruitfulness. Isn't it interesting that a pear tree will bear pears. A peach tree will bear peaches, but the fruit is not for the tree itself. The fruit is for others. When God saves you, it's not just for you, but that God will be glorified and through your life, spiritual fruit will be produced in your life to the benefit of others. God saves you, wants you to live for his glory, not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. That a spiritual fruit is produced in your life. 
such as the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. There's that love, that joy, that peace, that spiritual fruit that will affect others in your life. This is the godly life, the godly man. Separated from the world, saturated in the Word of God. Secondly, we move now to the road to ruin, the godless life. The godless life. Beginning in verse number 4. The ungodly, the opposite, the ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind driveth away. Here is the ungodly man. Interesting, because in the book of Psalms, David has a category for the wicked pagan nations. They're called the heathen in the Psalms. Yet he's not referring to the heathen, he's referring to the ungodly. These are people who are lost and godless, but they're mixed among the people of God. They're godless in that God really has nothing to do with their life. Sure, they'll give them that hour, but their life shouts one thing, godless, godless. The godless are those who are among the covenant people of God, but yet they don't know the Lord truly. They're ungodly. The ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not blessed. The question can be, are the ungodly, are they blessed? No way. Are they happy? Not in an eternal sense. Are they successful? Not in eternity. Are they fruitful? Not spiritually speaking. No, not so. They may sound outgoing and look successful, but they are not so. This is the picture. The ungodly are pictured as their lives being useless, evaluated from the point of view of the Word of God. Life without the Lord and the direction of His Word is a life lived without true direction and purpose. The ungodly actually do what God forbids in verse 1. They walk in the counsel of the wicked. They, they, they love the advice of the world. They want the world to tell them what to do, for they live for that. They stand in the way of sinners. They sit and the seed of mockers mocking biblical Christianity. Therefore, unlike the righteous who are like a tree whose leaf doesn't wither, the wicked are like shaft. They're blown away in the day of judgment. This is the picture. In the Middle East, usually there will be a threshing floor on top of a hill. It's padded down hard dirt that has been padded down over many years. Farmers would take their grain to the threshing floor where there would be a nice breeze passing through the area. They would take their grain, place it on the threshing floor, and they would put it in a sort of like a large snow shovel. They would grab the grain and throw it up in the air. And the heavier wheat would fall to the ground and that which covered it, the worthless shaft, would get blown to the side. And they would do this over and over as they purify the wheat. The wheat would fall down, the shaft gets blown to the side. Throw up the wheat, the wheat would fall down, more shaft would be blown to the side. And the picture here is that there's going to be a day of reckoning in which the godly, the wheat, are separated from the shaft. The shaft was literally good for nothing. It couldn't even be used to make a good fire because the fire would burn it up within seconds. This is the description of an ungodly life, a life that is lived for self instead of the Savior. 
You come to the end, you would say, my life was worthless because I didn't live it for the Lord. It's compared to shaft. The ungodly man's life is compared to shaft. In the 1890s, there was a man, a Turkish man by the name of Yusef Ishmaelo. Yusef was known as the Turk. He was a, a wrestler, sort of a professional wrestler, WW, whatever the WW was back then. And he would come to the United States and get into these professional wrestling matches and get paid, and he would go back home. He had to come to the United States. He was a very suspicious man. He didn't want to be paid in cash. He wanted to be paid in gold. And he didn't trust anyone, including banks, so he always had around his waist a large belt where he would keep his gold earnings around him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It got pretty heavy because he was a good wrestler. On his way back home to Turkey, he was on a ship, and the ship began to sink. Other passengers said that he reacted like a madman. He pulled out his knife. He says, I am getting on that boat, that rescue boat. I'm going to get on that life raft. And he ran. And they told him, wait, wait for the next boat. He would not listen. So as they were lowering the boat with people, and it was already full, he ignored all instruction and just dove in, him and his big belt of gold. As he jumped in, he caused the boat to tip over. And though he was a good swimmer, yet because he had thousands of dollars of gold on his belt that was extremely heavy, it drowned him. Here's a man with much gold, but what good did it do for him on that day? It drowned him. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the ungodly man, his life that has lived for self, for success, for money. It is compared in Scripture to shaft. Nothing could be as worthless as shaft. Verse 5. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not be able to stand justified before the judge of the universe on that day. They will not have God's acceptance when they stand before him. Rather, they will be exposed for, they, for the, who they really are according to Revelation chapter number 20. What happens to Shaft is a picture of what happens to the lost. This image is picked up by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 where he speaks of the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah has come to earth. Yes, it is true, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Men have condemned themselves in their sin. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ, yes, he is a Savior for sinners, and in the gospel he is offered to all men, but he's also the judge of the universe. And John the Baptist described him as such. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, John the Baptist wrote, said of Jesus, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into his gardener, into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The picture is that the wheat represents God's people whom he takes 
to the, those mansions in heaven. But the shaft are the godless, those who live for self, who never come to repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they just don't cease to exist. They're, they're cast into unquenchable fire. This is a picture of a literal place called hell. This is the picture. The weed are gathered into the Lord's barn, into heaven. But the shaft, they just don't become eternally separated from God. They're, they're sent to hell. Unquenchable fire. Verse 6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Hebrew word translated perish means to die, to undergo destruction. Yet the word perish was also used of eternal destruction of the wicked beyond physical death. When used of destruction after death, it never meant complete annihilation, never. Rather, it spoke of unending eternal destruction of the wicked that will never cease. You say, man, this is, what a contrast. The godly man and the godless man. The godly man who meditates on God's word day and night. As we think of the godly man, who can really say, as even as a Christian, saved by the grace of God, who can say that they've always meditated on God's word day and night? That since the moment of my salvation, I have not ceased to think biblically about anything. Well, a man by the name of Joseph Flax, he was sent in the early 1900s, back to Palestine, back to Israel, the Holy Land, to evangelize the Jewish people who were there. Many of them did not believe in the Lord, that is, in the Lord Jesus. He entered into a synagogue there and wanted to witness to them. And they were studying Psalm 1. And in the middle of it, Joseph got up and said, who is truly that blessed man who always thinks upon God's word and who always perfectly obeys our God? He says, was it Father Abraham? He was a godly man, but he was far from perfect. Was it Moses? Ah, Moses lost his temper and didn't enter into the promised land. We can't say he was always that godly man. They say, well, I guess there was no man that was perfectly blessed who perfectly obeyed the word to which Joseph Flack said, you're wrong. There was one Jewish man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He has perfectly obeyed the Father. Not only was God's word upon his mind and heart 24 hours a day, but he can say, I always do the will of the Father. Jesus could stand up and says, which one of you can convict, convict me of sin and no one said anything? Imagine that, someone doing that today. Imagine Brother Richard getting up and saying, Who can convict me of sin? Everyone, me, 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 I can. I can, me, 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 me. But Jesus can say, Who can convict me of sin? And no one said anything. Because Jesus is a perfect Savior. He was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect and sinless life, and went to the cross of Calvary to die for sinners and to suffer the wrath of God in the place of every sinner who would ever, ever repent and believe in Him. You just don't make yourself a godly man. You must first come to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in true repentance of sin and in faith in Jesus Christ. For if you live for self and for this world, your life at the end will be nothing but shaft, awaiting eternal judgment in hell. 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word and how it ministers to our hearts even this morning. The godly life of the man who meditates in your word day and night. Father, I pray that as believers we would be given over to your word to know it, to meditate upon it, and to live it that you would be glorified in our life. Father, I pray for those who are on the road to ruin, the ungodly that are mixed among the godly today, that you would save them by your grace, that you would bring them to true repentance of sin, and that they would come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ even now, trusting not in self or in family or in a church, but trusting solely in Jesus Christ and his perfect work on the cross of Calvary. Bless your word, O God as we respond to it this morning. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.